In your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter 5 if you have them. And we're going to begin reading together verses 2. We're going to focus on verses 13 through 16. And he, Jesus, opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, by now, maybe these words are familiar with for you. But like I said, one of the disadvantages of taking Scripture in little small, small pieces is we sometimes we can miss the, the flow of thought, the continuity. And now where it's good sometimes to take and we can focus and, and kind of chew and, and think about words. I want to take just a quick few minutes to look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, and, and think for a minute how these things all fit together. So go back to verse 3. Of course, we have the word that repeats throughout this passage again and again and again, blessed. It's the key word of this passage. It's saying that God's favor rests. His, his, he's sharing his glory, his goodness is with these, and then to fill in the blank. And we, we can easily pass over that word and think, well, blessed. We think we sometimes say that, oh, he's, he or she is blessed with a, a good ability in math or something. And we, we, we mean that somebody's got an advantage. They've got something. But, but what God is saying is in a special way, he is sharing his grace, his power, 
himself, this blessing. And I think we, we could easily miss that. And it starts where we may not expect. He says, the poor in spirit. Do you remember what that means? Poor in spirit. I think of that best as, as what is described as being spiritually bankrupt. When you don't have any money and you can't pay your bills, that's one thing. We've all been tight on money. We've all been thinking, wow, how am I going to make it through this month, probably? I have. But bankruptcy is when you have a debt that is so large, there is no way you will ever pay it back. Poor in spirit is this idea of being spiritually in a place where you, you recognize that I have nothing to pay back. This is the beginning. This is where this, this starts, this, this blessedness. And it's important to see that it, it cannot start with being merciful. It's actually the realization that I'm not merciful. It can't start with being meek or pure in heart because we're not that. And when we see that, when we see, wait, I'm not merciful. I'm not pure in heart. That's the idea. That's when we're starting to understand that we're, we're poor in spirit. And the great divine irony here is what God says about the poor in spirit. He does not call them wretched, though they are. No, the God of heaven pronounces blessing. Blessed are those people who realize they have no way of paying back their spiritual debt. They realize how infinitely holy God is and how unholy they are. What do those who are truly poor in spirit do? We follow the text. When I see my sin for what it is, I've offended and defied and rejected an infinitely holy and loving God. What do I do? What can I do? Because part of the realization is that there is nothing that we can do. We're, we're bankrupt. We're powerless. We're guilty. There's no way out. What, what then do we do? We mourn. We turn to God and say, wow, we are, we are broken beyond repair. They mourn. One Bible teacher said this, the people who mourn, they, these are those who are troubled themselves more about sin than anything else in the earth. They're aware of how hard and difficult it is to them. The burden is intolerable. Blessed are such. God says the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit. And those people, they receive comfort. That's where the progression goes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. They'll receive comfort. What is that comfort? Go back to our memory verse, what we've been looking at, Romans chapter 5. 
Therefore, those who have been justified by faith have peace with God. See, that's the comfort. Even though we're guilty, God offers peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the key. Those who are poor in spirit, in turn, that produces a genuine meekness. Meekness. What does that mean? Those who are patient and contented in spirit. They're willing to put up with little honor here below. They can bear injury without resentment. Meekness is not alone. The poverty of spirit has created a new appetite. It's no longer a hunger and thirst for just what satisfies me, what is going to help me, what is it about me. It's a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Wow, that is something that God gives. We don't get that. The hunger to know God, to be like him. The hunger leads to a growth of mercy. Those who have received mercy, they want to share mercy. They want others to know this mercy. They understand what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They realize that they, are, they, are, they have peace with God. It's the fruit. The fruit of this is purity. And God says, blessed are those who are pure in heart. I appreciate what J.C. Ryle said about this. He says, the pure in heart, those who do not aim merely at an outward correctness, but an inward holiness. They're not satisfied with a mere external show of religion. They strive to keep a heart and a conscience void of offense and to serve God with their spirit and their inner man. Blessed are all such. The heart the heart is the man. But man looks at the outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. Because we know and enjoy peace with God, we want to share that peace. And the world doesn't always want to hear it. And so here comes the idea of persecution. That, that, that transformation that has happened in our lives, the world sees it and sometimes they recoil. That makes sense because John chapter 1 says this, that men, women, people love darkness more than light because their deeds are evil. So God's transformation in our life, people see it and they, they sometimes push away. They poke fun. They try to tear it down because they love their own kingdom and not God's. So they protect their empty kingdom by attacking God's. This is, this is the, the Beatitudes where God has declared his blessing. Now, a couple of comments just on this before we move on. Do these changes take place immediately? Is this describing five minutes in time or five months or five years or five decades? Well, we can say this, the forgiveness is immediate. 
those that are, are, are poor in spirit and turn to God in faith, God's forgiveness is immediate. Is immediate. But the realization and transformation of these things, it, it takes time. Think, think of a seed that's planted. At some specific moment, that, that seed, which was by all practical purposes, it was dead, you put it in the ground. It was lifeless, cold. But in some places, it starts, it comes alive. And some seeds, some seeds will come up, they'll germinate just after a few days. They'll break out of the, the earth. You'll see this. But, but some seeds take a long, long time. There's life there. There's growth. But we can't see it. It's all under the ground. But eventually, if it's a live plant, eventually it can't be kept underground. It comes and we see it. And the plant springs up to life. And it's designed, every plant, to eventually bear fruit. Eventually, the new life is visible. And if it is not, we have no reason to believe that there is life there. And that is precisely where today's text takes us. Look at verse 13. Because what Jesus is saying in introducing the next topic, this idea of, of salt and light, I believe Jesus is saying this is salt and life. When this is being lived out, these things are alive, these characteristics. The end result is, is it's, it's, it's like salt. It's like light. You know, the, the imagery of this passage is, is a, it's an amazing metaphor. Those who are genuine followers of Jesus are salt and light. I mean, think about it for a moment. Why, why does he use that? Why, why these two things? I mean, he could have said, you are bowling balls and toasters. But that wouldn't make any sense, would it? He, he, he grabbed two things that, that, that are very, very concrete that everybody knows universally. It's probably a good thing to stop and ask, what, what do these two things have in common? We need to separate what Jesus meant then from what these terms mean now. Otherwise, we could really get confused, right? Because today, if someone says, Oh, that girl is salty. That has a very different meaning than what Jesus meant, right? Means she's bitter, she's angry, she's feisty. Does, does Jesus mean that we, we enhance flavor? Add a little salt to that and it'll be really good? I mean, is that like, like caramel? Do you like caramel? Well, then you should try salt caramel because it's really good. Is that what Jesus is talking about? No, I think there's something more. When you taste salt, you know what you're tasting. Salt goes in our mouth. It's very uncommon and unlikely that a person says, hmm, what is that? 
Is that blueberry? No, no, salt is salt, and we know it instantly. And so that this is a, an idea. I mean, when we look at salt on a table, you might say, well, is that sugar or salt? But we taste it, and we know in an instant what it is. And, and if you taste it and you have any doubt, you have COVID. <laughs> no, you know, salt is so distinct, isn't it? It's like we know. There, there's no confusing salt with other things. And I think that is, that is the point. It's distinct. It's unmistakable. And those people that have been born again, something has happened in their life and the reality of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ in us, changes us. We're not the same anymore and there's something different. And the world should be able to see that. Light. Light's a strange one. I mean, back in the day, the biblical days, they didn't have light bulbs and LEDs and stuff, right? The source of light was two things. It was the sun or it was fire. That was it. There were no flashlights. There were no cell phones with a flashlight. It was, it was, it was something that was very important of that day. And light is something that, that is so distinct. I mean, think about it. If, if, you, uh, if you were reporting a crime and the police came over and said, okay, well, tell me what you saw. And you say, well, I don't know. It was, it was dark. But all of a sudden, there was a flash, and I think it was a rhinoceros. The flash? No, the flash was light. We don't mistake light with anything else. Light is so distinct. And it's extraordinary. You know, we can have a flashlight and we turn it on and all of a sudden there is light. It sheds. It shines forth light. You know, we don't have a, a, a dark lamp. I turn it on and it shoots a beam of darkness. Light has this extraordinary place that it dispels darkness. God says, those people who are mine, they're going to be Light. I'll tell you what, it might be a very, very, very dim light. But in the darkness, I'll tell you what, when it's pitch black, even a little ember, even one match, I'll tell you what, it makes a lot of light. And it's distinct. It is distinct from the darkness. It doesn't, it's not a part of it any longer. A couple weeks ago at prayer meeting, we read from Psalm 34. Psalm 34, verse 8 says this. It says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. David, David saying, you know, you, you, God's goodness is something that you can taste and see. Wow, think about this. 700 years later, Jesus comes on the scene and says, you are the salt. Something you taste. The salt of the earth. You are the light. It's what we see. Oh, taste and see that God is good. Friends, there's something unimaginable here. God has taken his people, us, 
And for the world to see his goodness, he wants to use you and me. That's unbelievable. He's taking people who are dirty, rotten sinners, broken. We don't have it all together. And he says, he says no, no, my, you are going to be my salt and my light for the world. And it's unimaginable to be distinct, to stand out. How does that happen? I can't make that. It's not my light. It's not my saltiness. It's, it's, it's very important that we understand that this is Christ in us. Where does this happen? It starts right at the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's us turning to God and going, saying, God, I need your goodness, your grace, your goodness. I need to be filled with you. Because when we look at this, friends, there's, there's four, four possible outcomes of this. We either are not salt, we are not light, we have some salt, some light, we are salt and light, or we're false salt and light. See, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is God's. And there's going to be light. There's going to be life in it. It's an amazing thing that Jesus speaks these words because in John chapter 8, Jesus actually says this. He says, I am the light of the world. Well, how can Jesus be the light of the world and we be the light of the world? You see, the light that we are is Christ in us. He is still the light. But it's him shining through us. Are you the salt of the earth? Have you lost the distinctness of Christ? Are you and I shining forth the hope of Christ? Or has that light faded? Just blending in with the darkness. Friend, if this is you and me, according to the text, we have no worth. We, have, we are good for nothing. That's what Jesus says. Nothing except to be stepped upon by the world. See, there's something that happens when, when, when people are trying to please the world and God. And that's a temptation. We think, well, if the world would just like me, maybe they'll like Jesus too. No, it never works that way. We end up just becoming trodden on by people. There, there is no, there's, there's not that respect. If we've wandered from Christ... We want to let this sink in. My only purpose in life would be to be the footpath of the world. 
because we're no longer distinct, we have nothing to offer. Your darkness, not light. What, what should we do? We go back to the beginning. You see, these beatitudes is not just a one-time thing. We go through this and that's good for the rest of our life. Salvation is a one-time thing. But we find ourselves where we've been watered down. We find ourselves that we've, we've wandered from the path. We find ourselves that we're, we're, we're cold. We go back and we turn to God and say, God, help me be poor in spirit. We repent. We ask God to show uh, and convict me of my spiritual need and my bankruptcy. We go to God and we tell him that we've wasted away his inheritance. We are not worthy to be called his son or his daughter. We do that and see how God responds. How God responds like the father in Luke 15. He will embrace you, draw you in, wash you, put his robe upon you, and restore you. Well, there's one more part of this text that I want to look at before we close. We can't do this on our own. I don't have the boldness of myself. I don't have the distinctness of myself. It's Christ in us. But verse 16, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What a great takeaway for all of us. I know there's a lot of very talented people in this church. Those of you who are studying are, are working hard studying. Those of you who work, you work hard. There are a lot of people here that, that, that lose a lot of sleep trying to parent well. There's a lot of sacrifice that we give in life. And here's something I think we need to catch on to. Because... Uh, what is going on in us, the, the good things are, are God's things. And what God's invitation for you and me is, he says, Look, I want you to live in a way that when people see the good that's in your life, they glorify God. Now, most of us are, are familiar with plagiarism, right? That would be the idea that you write something, and I take it and I say, I wrote this pretty nice, right? We know that that's not good. Can you imagine working on a huge project at work and you've like done 10% of it and you present it to the boss and say, yep, I did this all by myself. Thank you. It's great work. I know. We don't want to do that. We wouldn't want to be, have our work taken away. And in the same way, we don't want to take God's work in us and take credit for it. Somebody says, wow, you're such a gentle person. You're such a kind person. Friend, where did you get that? Did you make that in your kitchen? Your kindness? 
I mean, some people are seemingly born and they're very, very gentle. They're very, very kind. That is from God. What do you have except that you do not receive it? Some of you can do math in some most bizarre, amazing ways. Yes, you may have worked hard to get there, but who gave you the ability? You may do sales really, really great. You may have the ability to work hard and be diligent. You may have have great mental capacity. These are all from God. And the invitation that God gives us is as we work, whatever we have to do, we do it in a way that God gets the glory. So what a great thing. Maybe the next time that somebody turns to you and says, wow, you did this really, really, really well. We can turn and say, wow, God has given me an opportunity to glorify him. It's right there. It's served. God's God's presented something. Somebody has noticed something different in me, and it's not me. We want to know that we know that. It's not me, but it's God's goodness at work. So I give him credit. I can turn and say, wow, yeah, I'm not naturally patient. I'm not naturally kind. You know, I, I actually give up really, really easy, but God's really helped me. I'm thankful to God for my ability to do math, my, my ability to organize. And what can I say? I, I ask him for strength every day. It's to him. May, may the glory be his. I think especially when it comes into these areas that, that God names in the Beatitudes here, these things about patience, these things about that involve meekness, mercy, pure in heart, being a peacemaker. These are opportunities that God gives us. It could even just be a quarrel at work, friends. Can I, in humility, take the low spot? Can I, can I not have to have my way? I might not have to have the last word. I don't have to point out all the faults. And maybe somebody who's observing this turns and says, you know, wow, you uh, took the brunt of that and you were really kind. Maybe this is an opportunity to be able to say, wow, let me tell you, God has been so kind to me. I am so grateful that he has shown me his kindness. You see, this is how we can let our light so shine before men that God will get the glory. And even in our brokenness, we can turn to God and say, wow, this is where I want to be more like. Can you imagine what this is like? Imagine what God is doing here. He's he's calling us salt and light who are dead, corrupt, and cancerous. And now you and I are the light of the world. Well, I can't do that on my own strength. I don't want to even try. You see, this is the grace of God. It's not our light, but his. Colossians 1, verse 27, talks about Christ in you is the hope of glory. This idea is repeated over and over in Scripture. So we, we make sure we don't have the idea that this is us. 
Let me leave you one more verse just to close. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 6 and 7. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power that belongs to God and not to us. Friends, did you, find, did, you, did you see your part in this, my part in this? We're the clay jars. Not very impressive. Easily broken. In some ways, expendable. But what we have, what we have in this clay jar is the glory of God. And if that is so in your life, in my life, may we let it out and may it shine forth that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. That we can let the light shine out of our darkness. For this is what God has called us to be. This is eternal life, to know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. This is why we're here. This is why when God saves us, he doesn't just take us up into heaven. He has a purpose for you and me to be his salt and light in a world that so desperately needs it. Let's pray.